Yo, thanks for tuning into the podcast. And yes, I know you don't actually tune into podcasts these days. I don't know if actually there was ever a day where anybody ever tuned into a podcast. It never was a deal. Because it's not 1996 and there's no dial. Uh, But I want to thank you, the listener, uh, Bill. That's who's listening, Bill. Uh, Or Sally or Sue. Or some more generic names that I could pull from a book from like the 60s. Uh, I want to thank you for clicking a link and taking the time to listen to me talk. Whether you meant to click the link or you just stumbled on it in the middle of the night because you're like, all right, I want to do something a little less sinful than all the other options that you do in the middle of the night on the interwebs. Um, Well, guess what? You're wrong. This podcast is worse than porn. I'm just going to say it right now. Uh, But this week, I didn't uh, didn't do porn for once. Uh, I interviewed a a musician who you may know. He's somebody who, uh, like I say in my intro, I danced on a lot of coffee tables in college to him. He... uh, He's, uh, his music is, is thoughtful, it's, it's honest, it's funny. Ben Folds was my guest, and we talk about his new book, which I highly suggest you pick up. It's called A Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. And uh, totally, go pick it up. Even if you're just like one of those people who's like, you know what, I need, I had this New Year's resolution where I was going to read like 12 books, and I've read like instead like a few articles off Twitter. It, that This is the one to go pick up right here. This is the one. Um, we talk about the book, of course. We talk about Ben's new podcast series where he interviews presidential candidates about the arts. Uh, we talk about a, an absurd job that Ben had growing up where he um, he delivered wine with this this truck that had a very small steering wheel. And as he was telling me this, I was just picturing like a clown car of sorts. What else? Oh, we talk about George Carlin who, if you don't know, was a very funny comedian, who I think, um, if my research serves me correctly, uh, did a lot of watermelon smashing jokes. He smashed a lot of watermelons. But yeah, oh, and I go TMZ. I go TMZ in the interview, and I asked him if and when there will be a a Ben Folds 5 reunion. So that is the hard-hitting crack journalism that you get here which is journalism that I do while I'm on crack. Um, no, but I, I did. I asked, him, um, I asked him that. I went, you know, I went Harvey Levin. I went Harvey Levin. I almost said Harvey Weinstein. That's not a, that's not a good reference there. But before we get to the interview in just a couple of minutes, I want to bring up something real fast. The number 300. As in, at the time of recording this, Donald Trump has spent 300 days of his presidency at a Trump property. And of those days, he spent 232 of them as president at a Trump golf club. And yet, per multiple sources close to the president, he still sucks at golf. 300 days. Like, that is nuts. I mean, and this is true, okay? This is totally 100% true. I'm not bullshitting you. In the time Trump has been president, I have not lived in the same apartment for 300 days. All right? And I know what you're thinking. Trump, 
a grifter, Justin, a drifter. Okay, and that is true. That is definitely true. But there's a bigger point I want to make besides the fact that I am basically homeless. Uh, the Democrats are going to have to make, when, they have, when, when the Democrats finally have a nominee, uh, they're going to have a true challenge of prosecuting a case against Donald Trump without sinking to a level where they're talking about hand size, which is really fucking difficult seeing as Trump has very small hands. My suggestion, talk about corruption. All right, that's what you have to do. Talk about the corruption. All right, and in the words of every presentation ever given to any corporate boardroom in America, make that shit high level. All right, no need to drill down into the nitty gritty details. All right, keep it. Let's talk about let's talk about corruption, and then just lay out like the highlights. Lay out the best of CD. Okay, all right. Like the fact that he spent like nearly a year at his properties and on the golf course, or how he stole money from his foundation to have a portrait of himself made, which he bought because nobody wants to wake up next to fucking Donald Trump, even if it's a portrait. Just ask Melania. That's why they have separate bedrooms. Or talk about the fact that he hired a fucking 600-year-old billionaire named Wilbur Ross who threatens the nation's weather officials because, you know, they deserve it. He threatens their jobs, and he fucking falls asleep in meetings. You can't even make that shit up, all right? Or just, you know, talk about his friends like Moscow Mitch in Congress and how the only legislative accomplishment that Moscow Mitch got when he owned the Senate and the Republicans owned the House was the fact that they passed an extremely unpopular tax cut for rich people and corporations. Or talk about his other friends who are in prison, like uh, like Paul Manafort or uh, uh, who's that guy who, who sounds like he's in the mafia but he's just really dumb? Uh, what's his face? Michael Cohen. There we go. Or Vladimir Putin because... I think that's his chief of staff currently. Anyway, there's a ton of reasons to go after corruption, all right? That's what I'm trying to say. But that's the cool thing. Just make it high level. Just talk. Say he's super corrupt. Lay out some bullet points. You can tie it. You know, it, it, make, it like a, make it like a fucking, uh, you know, like a, you know, like a choose-your-own-adventure, all right? Pick different things at different times. You're giving a speech to, uh, you know, to the folks in Iowa, all right, give them one thing, all right? You're in a Charleston, South Carolina, give them another thing. There's a lot to choose from. And if there's one candidate who's gotten it right so far, it's Elizabeth Warren, who just this week held a 20,000-person-plus rally in Washington Square Park in New York because I'm assuming that Madison Square Garden, just like the Knicks have been for the past two decades, was rebuilding. Boom, shakalaka. That's right, Knicks. Take that joke. Take that joke. And don't buy an all-star with that. I'm telling you, as the AP reported, Warren had this right, man. She called it out. She called Trump, quote, corruption in the flesh. And she went on to say, quote, he is sworn to serve the people of the United States, but he only serves himself and his partners in corruption. That is the whole point. That is the whole fucking point. Because you can talk about climate change and education and gun safety and opioids, and you can go down the damn list, all right? And you can, you know, 
like smart people can disagree on some nuances on all this stuff and and even some of the fundamental goals of these things. But the fact that like you people become cynical when they watch politics is because you get self-serving corrupt assholes in power. And the person and the Democrat who can lay that case out will become the next president of the United States. Mark my words and read my lips. Or read Ben Fultz's new book, I Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. I want to really quickly thank uh, Ben Folds, of course, for doing the interview. It was fantastic to talk with him as well. Um, working with his manager and his, um, his touring manager, they were both awesome to work with. Uh, also, uh, Mike Stocksdale, my sound engineer, who uh, has, has, over the last couple episodes, made this into, a, I think he calls it, a big boy podcast. He is a fantastic musician and uh, my, my new sound engineer on the podcast. Of course, Jake the Snake Craney uh, for his fake sponsors, my best friend uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, really funny guy and um, degenerate Florida State fan. And, uh, of course, Corey Hill, who is a super smart, great writer. Uh, check him out at News Chill. News C Hill on uh, Twitter, Jake Crane on Twitter, Mike Stocksdale everywhere. He's everywhere. He's in the ether. Um, check them all out. Uh, they all do great work. Um, Corey is uh, producing and helping out in the show in a lot of different ways, and is always a, oftentimes a frequent guest as well. So, um, anyway, I want to call those guys out, and also uh, Melanie Tanaka, who helped put together the teaser video of this. Uh, She's a she's a good friend and um, and and just uh, just a great help for me. So I uh, want to thank her as well. And finally, everybody who's supported this podcast: uh, Kurt, Robert, Mad Dog, my family, Jeff, Josh, my father, Mina, One, and of course my girlfriend Allie, who's the biggest fan of the show. Thanks so much. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Ben Folds. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on uh, iTunes and. Uh, Write a review if you like it. Share it with friends and uh, spread the word, baby. Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, he is a musician who has been widely regarded as one of the major musical influences of our generation. Certainly, he was an influence for me when I was drunkenly dancing on coffee tables in college. Hmm. He's also a producer, an actor, an accomplished photographer, a former reality show judge, and now he's the author of a new book. It's called A Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. Uh, it's on bookshelves, Amazon. I assume, various places on the dark web. Ben Folds, thanks so much for being my guest. Good to be here. Uh, first of all, let me just say, that is like one hell, like what I just read, that's one hell of a LinkedIn profile right there. Oh, yeah. Hopefully I'll get some more work. You've done a lot of stuff right there. I have, yeah. Have you ever, like, was there ever a point when you're like, after you made it big in music, that you thought, hey, maybe, maybe I'll do something a little less creative, you know? Maybe I'll be like an HR generalist. <laughs> well, that one didn't occur to me, no. but um, you know, the work that I do 
uh, for the Kennedy Center um, and the and the National Symphony Orchestra, which I've been doing for three years as their um, uh, artistic advisor, is very time consuming and very um, satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of like a day gig. So it is. I wouldn't say it's not creative. I actually think that almost any work that's worth doing it it does have a bit of creativity to it from from I mean my father was a carpenter and that was plenty creative yeah um, part of the point of my book sort of is that um but yeah no no I mean I, I I do what I find interesting that is possible to do and and uh and uh you know won't make me completely go broke or uh you know <laughs> You had, I mean, you had a lot of jobs. You talk about in the book, like a lot of jobs before you got into music, and yeah. I know you talk about it in your songs as well. Which job kind of stands out for you, like as as kind of the most absurd or like the you know kind of the craziest job you ever had? Um. Well, I, I delivered wine. Uh, I, I, I at this one, it wasn't real. I wasn't supposed to be delivering wine. I was supposed to be washing dishes at a place that sold wine and I started delivering it but what made it absurd (laughs) wasn't the delivery of wine and I was probably too young to be doing that but it was that the van had a steering wheel that was about three inches in diameter okay it had been taken off some kind of little bumper cars or something some joke yeah and it was really hard to drive (laughs) and that made it absurd to like have this wheel that was no bigger than a small cereal bowl yeah that 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 was the steering wheel (laughs) well and you like i said you talk a lot about your childhood growing up um in the book like i want to ask you about the book like did you decide to do that as was it just because of like another creative challenge for you or was it also this way this sort of catharsis well, it was, you know, it was a lot of stuff, but probably the fuel for it uh, was the, um, the, you know, the possibility that I could make something that was sort of a casual, informal case study of one dude, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, so my job is fairly creative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not all of it. I mean, a lot really? of my job is just, you know this or being human cargo, you know, talking about what I do or being carted from place to place and, and uh, trains, planes, automobiles, and I buses. appreciate you being our cargo over here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just want to say that. Yeah, is- yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's all part of the it's all part of the job, but that's just to say that for anyone who romanticizes it as being 100% creative, it's not. But, you know, it's fairly creative. It's fueled by creativity. So I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, to um, you know, show what I thought might be factors why, kind of like uh, uh, George Orwell's Why I Write or, uh, or you know, On Writing by Stephen King. Anytime someone can kind of give you lay out a story of their life and you might be able to, if you're a parent, you might go, ah, oh, you know, this is something to think about. It could work. Or if you were another musician, uh, that could work. Or if you didn't do music as uh, or, or a, a creative job, quote, creative, as your main thing, maybe you'd recognize how much creativity there is in the thing that you do. Well, and that kind of brings me, because you are a huge proponent of the arts. And I know you actually have a podcast series out now where you're interviewing presidential candidates. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that, because I've interviewed, uh, I interviewed uh, John Delaney actually recently. And yeah. sometimes, I mean, they like to talk. So yeah. 
is it easy to get them to talk about the arts or do you have to sort of steer them in that direction? No, they're very, you know, they, they, that's not something that they get asked about normally. You right. know, I mean, they're, 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 the arts is not on the front of, of their stump speech or anything, right? Or it's not <laughs> going to come up in the debates. You know, John Delaney, John Delaney was uh, on the board of the National Symphony Orchestra mm. uh, in D.C., uh, and his his daughters are are uh, are very into uh, uh, music, and um, you know um, he enjoyed talking about that. And uh, th they also are fairly most of the candidates are fairly knowledgeable on the policy surrounding arts because arts uh, generate a very large part of uh, our economy. Mm -hmm. uh, m more the uh, bigger uh, a bigger percentage of it than transportation. Really? Yeah, it's really it's a very big stimulator of the economy, and it's a great thing uh, to invest in. It uh, resuscitates and revives entire sections of town. If you can uh, uh, renovate a, a, a theater and bring business in that area through through uh, 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 you know through music or shows or museums, yeah. It's a big thing. So they all have to have some idea, especially if they come from local politics, they have to have some idea of arts policy. So I don't find it difficult to get them to talk about that at all. Uh, you know, you have to, you know, so you've interviewed a lot of people, you know, with the politician, you have to let them first thank everyone and do all their formal shit at the top. Right. Yeah. You know, and I learned that. But after that, it's just a matter of, you know, personally, what does it mean to them? But then I want to hear about all the points of policy and, and how they intend from an executive position, which is very difficult to steer things like the directives for the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities and PBS and NPR and so on. Is there is there anybody who has stood out to you? I mean, we talked a little bit about John Delaney, but are there any other candidates that have stood out to you as like, okay, this person, if elected, they're actually going to get some shit done when it comes to the arts? I think they all um, admire the model of uh, John F. Kennedy. And he was, it was under John F. Kennedy that I believe the National Endowment for the Arts was conceived. I believe it started under Johnson, technically. Um, but I think that they, they, uh, they admire that and there's always been a big model for the Democrats. Now, the, the catch is, is that the executive branch is not the most effective branch. I, I don't buy that for a damn second. <laughs> really? No, I'm just kidding. Of course, yeah. No, but it's not I, the most it, effective it, branch for the art specifically. Okay. It's a difficult... What they can do is support it um, in um, uh, as cheerleaders. But they can also... There's certain directives that they can make to the National Endowment of the Arts, for instance, and currently the directive has been under this administration nothing. They wanted to can it but uh, the one before had steered it, Obama had, had steered it towards veterans. Yeah. So that is a big, uh, uh, that wasn't the case, you know, like. The thing about the, 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 the Democratic um, ad administration is that they're very often the ones that are the least funded. Right, uh, because it becomes a it becomes an issue, and and um, for some crazy political uh, dynamic reasons, uh, it seems to have gone up under Republicans more than it has under Democrats. Well, and I mean, as uh, like like this administration, for instance, like Trump, like tell me about that. Like, has he done anything for the arts? I mean, obviously, a lot of the listeners of this podcast not big fans, but. No. 
No, no, I don't think he's done anything for the arts. I mean, I think by example, he showed that if you wanted to uh, uh, make a massive gold building and put your name on it and make that (laughs) your headquarters, it might be more successful close to the theaters, the museums, um, close to the arts district because he comes from the outer boroughs. But he knew the – the, um, in practice, he – understood to go where the action is. And the action is always where the arts is. Uh, It was John Delaney that said a friend of his told him as far as being an investor to follow the art, uh, follow the creatives, follow the artists, and you will find your investments. I think that's very true. Um, Other than that, um, his administration threatened to, um, to zero out the National Endowment for the Arts, um, but they didn't succeed in that because... Actually, uh, uh, the National Endowment of the Arts is not a, um, it's not a, uh, it's not, a, uh, it's not a partisan issue. I mean, there's right. plenty of, I mean, I, I've, 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 I've done talks and panels at the at the Republican National Conventions and the Democratic National Conventions, and I don't find more support one place or the other. In fact, I've found some of the most articulate. Uh, proponents of the arts uh, were actually on the right because they feel like they have to make a more solid, uh, succinct argument for it because, you know, in, in theory, fiscal conservatism might not want to pay for the arts. But the arts are an investment, which is what they understand that even with the National Endowment for the Arts, you know, it only works for them. They can only make it work if the success rate they have is putting a dollar in to, to, uh, to a community and seeing $7 come back from the private sector. Right. That's a, a hell of an investment, really. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So you need to take that out of the spending category, which is what the Republicans understand. Uh, the, the Democrats will tend to make a little more of a touchy-feely argument about yeah. how it makes you feel good. And, and that's good, too. I think both, both arguments are necessary. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Democratic Debates. Progressive to moderate, to moderately progressive, and progressively moderate. Gather around your TVs so we can gather around our podiums. We've got 12 more of these things. Hours upon hours of debates on the same subjects. Break out those lozenges, candidates. You've got a massive amount of yelling to do. The Democratic Debates. Is 10 co-presidents an option? We think that might be a thing. That might be a thing. Yeah, let's do that. Yes, you might be an illiterate, tax-evading, money-laundering, crass-ass, clown evangelist, racist, homophobic, windbag, squandering progress and hope with every step that you take. But sir, you exposed half the country for being fake. Last uh, cycle, you had uh, support, you supported Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, is it the same way now, or are you kind of opening up? Uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm leaving. I'm leaving it open. I mean, part of the reason that I, part of the reason that I um, wanted to do that podcast was the opportunity to really hear each one of them out personally mm-hmm. and report to my constituents. You know, yeah. report to my fans, people who are interested, because I, you know, hell, if I can get a front a front row seat and bring a microphone to it, let's do this. And um, so, no, I've kept my, um, I've kept my mind open. I, I think the thing is, is that, um, you know, if you relax about, um, uh, if you relax about it and don't worry too much about who the quote winner is going to be and take some time to hear their ideas, 
um, that's what this time is for. It's very valuable. And um, so I don't see any reason anyone needs to rush into it. I don't agree with most people who think 10 is too many or 20 is too many. I'm very interested in hearing what they all have to say. In fact, you know, at some point someone's going to uh, emerge as the total front runner. And I don't believe that's actually happened yet, despite the fact that everyone seems to think it's Biden. I don't actually think that's happened as a musician. I don't see it. Uh, I mean, he may be it, but I don't think it's, I don't think he can do a victory lap yet. And uh, I guess my point is, is that, you know, whoever's the front runner is going to, you know, annex and eat the ideas, take in the ideas of the people who they conversed with on stage or whatever. So all this Thunderdome shit that we see with the uh, uh, with the Democratic debates is a damn shame because that's not who I'm meeting. When I meet them, and you've probably found the same. I, I mean, I wouldn't give. We'll go back to John Delaney. I don't know if I would have given him the time of day on that stage as a citizen had I not talked to him. And he's a very serious contender because he can explain so many things to me. So I'm interested now. I'm like, I'm not going to think about who it is that's going to be the front runner yet. I still think we've got more ideas to talk about. Why not load up? Like really yeah. prepare yourself. But you know, they got the, everyone's got, you know, everyone's got a bunch of caked makeup on their face and they got these, these crane cameras flying around the place and, like I say that Thunderdome shit, and they're turning it in into some kind of... It's just stupid. They're turning it into something that just really belittles all the policy of it. And I kind of think people are starting to feel the effects of a reality show president. So why do you want to encourage another one? Like, they're supposed to come up with these one-liners, you know? Pete Buttigieg is, is extremely well-spoken about the arts. I don't think he knows as much about the policy of it as, say, Julian Castro does. But I don't, don't think Julian Castro frames it as well. And I really want to talk to Warren next, because I haven't really heard what she has, has had to say on it yet. And, of course, I'm interested in talking to Bernie. Bernie, I think we can get to. But some of them are harder to get to. Kamala's... Uh, camp is very, very hard to get through to. I was talking personally to uh, Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang recently, sort of the idea and being Yang gang. Yeah, being yeah. being, being to, to talk talk to some of the outliers here, the 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 odd the odd men and women out, and uh, see if they didn't have something to add to the conversation. At a young age, you were listening to music like eight hours a day, right? Yeah, I mean that that sounds. I don't mean this the wrong way. A little nuts. I mean, no, it's weird. It's weird, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and you mentioned too, like some research of like how positive listening to music can be for like you know young kids um but baby shark is that you know baby shark right no what's that? Okay. <laughs> it is it well it's it's this like youtube crap that's out there i mean you were listening to like records and, yeah. and you know legendary musicians and all this stuff but like you hear some of that crap out there like is that still good for kids too or is it well i mean i don't know i i, I think the thing that i want to see for kids is for uh, people to um, take a step back and view music for what it really is, which is communication. Yeah. So if it can be viewed as communication, if a kid goes, I don't want to go to school. Yeah. Wow. Well, you start a song. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to So go how to do school. you roll with that? Because my, my girlfriend has a two and a half year old and she'll start doing that. Yeah. Do you just like, if you're, if you're me or her. Play like, with it. You, okay. Play with it. it, it take, take interest in it. Be an audience for it, receive it. Like if if she's saying something that way, like, great. I mean, at some point, people hijack all those things, all the sounds, mm -hmm. and they turn it into music or turn it into art. Yeah. But at first, it's just communication. Yeah. So someone says they can't carry a tune, that's not true. Yeah. They, and they they can't write a song, that's not true. Uh, it's just that 
we view music, you know, the, a kid starts by drawing original things as a, as a uh, just a grade school student. Right. They're they're, they're get out a piece of paper. They're drawing something that is comes from their imagination. Yeah. But when it comes to music, we don't start there because mm-hmm. the assumption is you have to have all the skill to do it first. Yeah. Well, the truth is you do have to have a, quite a bit of skill to put it all together. But that would be true of the art too. So a combination of both would be would be ideal to me. But starting with the concept that what you are doing is communicating. Yep. That's it. I think that should make a big difference if that was the way that we looked at it. Don't you know I'm numb, man? No, I can't feel a thing at all because it's all smiles and business these days and I'm indifferent to the loss. And I faith that there's a soul somewhere that's leading me I have a friend, uh, Jennifer in Salt Lake. She just got a piano today, and she wants to learn a Ben Fold song. Mm. What's the one song she should start with? Um, maybe um, a song called "Evaporated." Okay, that might be that might be one. It's it's relatively simple, I think, to play. Okay. Uh, favorite thing. So I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I know you're from Winston Salem, North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, what was your favorite thing about growing up in the South? Besides, you know, the cutoff jean shorts. Well, I mean, it's colorful. You know, the the, <laughs> the South is um, is um, I don't know. I mean, uh, the South. There's so many Souths. Your South was different than my South. You know, and obviously, like you know, Texas is way different South right. than our South. Yeah, and there was a different South from. The center of Winston Salem to the outskirts of Forsyth County. Right. You know, it changed a lot. You know, the same people can people can grow up in the same town ten miles away, and one has a, a flat sort of almost Ohio accent, and then the other one has just a straight up Hick accent. Mm. Definitely, uh, definitely, uh, uh, it's not homogenous at all. It's and we're a little behind in in certain ways than we were when I was a kid. And I don't know. I think that's. I think that was interesting for me. Uh, any chance of a Ben Folds 5 reunion anytime soon? I don't think anytime soon because I've got so much. I mean, I can see what my schedule is going to be for the next two or three years and it just wouldn't involve something like that. Right. Um, you, you mentioned your book. So so my background, actually, I, I spent a, about a decade doing stand-up and you mentioned you could basically recite George Carlin bits and, and routines. What's your favorite George Carlin joke or routine or bit? Well, I like it when, uh, I like his, um, I think, I like when he touches on linguistics, it's amazing. I think his, his take on language might be his, his most, um, his most important contribution, you know, yeah. everything from pointing out that there's no way for you to pre-board, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, just, just like really, fan- and, and pointing out what happened to the language of, of war, you know, he's like shell shocked, yeah. And then it's post traumatic syndrome, you know, disorder syndrome, and then, and all, all his, uh, all the, the ways he, he shows that people smooth over their guilt with language is 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 that's intense, and that's a great. Uh, at, at at the end of his career, he had said that he changed his uh, his way of looking at at comedy and humanity by erasing the assumption that humanity will survive. 
Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, that's kind of he's become now at it's that point fatalistic. I mean, it's a little. It's it's not. It if you think about it, look, think about like the way, uh, not the, the the almost Zen not being attached to an outcome. How much clearer that makes your life. If you're attached to an outcome, that doesn't mean you don't want it. It just means you're not assuming it and you're not attached to it. Right. And uh, I think it's pretty deep. I mean, I don't think I would be the best defense attorney for his point of view. I think he was the best at that. Do you think that we, that lets you live more free? Well, I, I, I suppose it can. I mean, when I don't care how my show is going to go down, I play my best shows. It's clear to me what the next note should be. I can't control if someone likes it or not. Yeah. I can't control if I even get paid for it at that point. I'm just there and I'm, I'm, I'm doing each note. If I think like he, what he's saying is, is, is if someone's going to make political commentary, they always make political commentary with this sort of uh, uh, implication that good will prevail at some point. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what if it doesn't? It's like, well, let's, let's view that because, uh, and that doesn't mean at the end of the day that he's going to be negative about it. I know it sounds negative, but I think it's deeper than that. Last question. Uh, you got a show coming up. Do you still get nervous for this stuff? You've been doing it for a long time. I mean, to, to your last point, I mean, going out before a show, do you do you look at it like without worrying about the outcome? Generally, yeah. I used to vomit into buckets before my shows. But. Oh, that's awful. I mean, I know what that's like too. <laughs> I do know what it's like to be to to be first really, two years after that. It's really really nervous about it. I mean, well, it depends. You know, if I if you know, uh, I was going out on a tour a couple of years ago called the Paper Airplane Tour, and people threw paper airplanes with a request, and I played nothing but the requests. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty nervous because I didn't know what was going to come next, and I didn't know if I could actually perform all the hundreds of songs that might have been heard. Yeah. So that gave me a little uncertainty. With the uncertainty yeah. came some nerves. Today's podcast is brought to you by Capital Grill, the sizzling hot new spinoff restaurant from the folks who brought you Capital Chill. Come on in this Tuesday for a grand opening. Featuring stomach-shattering new dishes like the Bredo O Fork, which is an enormous bowl of fried bread scraps tossed with cheddar cheese, garlic salt, and six pounds of butter. Other exciting options include the Sliden Biden Sliders, featuring aged beef topped with aged Gruyere cheese, which have been assembled and aged for 12 hours under extreme heat lamps. Make sure to top it off with our tangerine-flavored ice cream, Trump Clumps, Served in the hugest bowl you've ever seen. Trust us, we know bowls. It's huge. Capital Grill. Clog your arteries with fat and puns. And I've been listening to old Bob Dylan. He was saying this before we were children. I like to think writing words is my calling. Everybody heard him and still the heart rate is falling. So I wonder if... Uh, it's ben Folds, I think that's all the time we got. But thank you so much thank you. for Thanks being for my guest. Uh Go buy the book, uh, A Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. I am 100 pages through only because I bought it on Monday and I'm a slow reader. I went to Florida State, but thanks so much. Take care, man. Thank you. (laughs) 